what do you need? What are some of the skills you need in a relationship? One is you need to be able to challenge your partner. Even if they're innocent, you need to be able to say, my feelings really were hurt when you canceled our bike ride on Saturday to be with your friends. If your partner flips out and can't even hear that kind of a complaint, how do you deal with the big issues? Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with our old friend, Linda Carroll. We're gonna talk about narcissists and relationships and the current trend of labeling people, you know, our lovers, partners, mothers, etc., as having character disorders. It's almost a buzzword now, especially narcissism. We'll talk about why that's damaging, the narcissistic continuum that we are all a part of, what constitutes a true personality disordered person, and of course, what we can do about this if we think we or someone we know and love might be in a relationship with a narcissist or even be one themselves. We're glad to have you with us here today at AOC, so enjoy this episode with Linda Carroll. And by the way, if you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the AOC Toolbox. That's where we discuss concepts like reading body language, having charismatic nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking and influence strategies, mentorship, persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach here at The Art of Charm. In the US, you can text the word charmed to 33444, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. Everywhere else, just go to theartofcharm.com, also at theartofcharm.com slash podcast, that's where you can find full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show. All right, here's Linda Carroll. Linda, I'm really glad to have you back here on the show. Jason and I both are because every time we have you on the show, we learn a bunch of really interesting stuff that we had maybe thought about briefly but never really done a deep dive on. And every time we have you on, we get a lot of notes about, wow, this was so interesting, and we gotta get to have her back and ask about this, and we get a lot of fan mail about it. So we were really interested in having you come back on, especially when you suggested the following topic, which was the whole narcissism thing. It seems like a buzzword, and every time somebody breaks up with somebody now, in this day and age, it's, oh, well, they were just a total narcissist, and it's like this clinical term that's getting abused. What do you think about that? Well, did I send you the article I wrote for Body, Mind, Green? It's called, Is Your Ex Really a Narcissist? And where it came from was that I started hearing people talking about people in their life who were difficult, and they were calling them not just narcissists, borderline personality. My mother's a borderline. My ex-girlfriend's a sociopath. My boyfriend's a narcissist. And I got curious about this because it seemed like it was happening all the time. People were using these labels all the time to describe it. And I know that from my own clinical studies that maybe 1% of the population are real live narcissists. So like, what is this phenomena? And I started to then read it because I write blogs. I read a lot of blogs and I couldn't believe how many blogs I read, many by people who were not trained or had not studied psychology about, well, if your boyfriend does this or your girlfriend says this, she's a narcissist dumper. I thought it's so incorrect. So I wrote this article and I just begin to speak about it. I think it's a fascinating topic and I wanna to try to set the record straight too. So I love talking about it. Yeah, it is abused and everybody becomes suddenly, oh, this person's a narcissist. And what percentage of the population is a real narcissist? Single digits or point, fraction of a percent, one percent. That's still a hell of a lot of people, right? It's a lot of people. Yeah. You know, it's not that many people. If you have 10,000 people, what is that? A hundred. And then for narcissistic character disorder, there's a continuum. Some people are real live narcissists, but they can adapt and they can develop their empathy. And other people at the other end, which is sociopathology, they can't. But out of that 1%, there's many people that can adapt to life and love from it. So it's not even that strong in terms of people that really are it, that that's where they live from. Right, so one, there's fewer narcissists than we think, and two, even certain narcissists are able to cope with it, maybe they're not on the same level of spectrum where they're incapable of functioning, it's just something that where they fall on the spectrum, kind of like, I mean, would you say there's high-functioning narcissists that can sort of get by and it's more of a vice or a, a little bit of a, a flavel versus a relationship-destroying flaw? I, I, yes, can we, 
talk about what a narcissist is versus narcissistic. Yeah, let's talk about the definition of who a narcissist is, what narcissism is, versus somebody who just does something or is acting narcissistic because of X, Y, Z circumstances, like you're fighting all the time, therefore they're acting more selfish, versus the pathology of somebody who can't help but be narcissistic 24-7. We all have narcissism. Narcissism is a continuum, and healthy narcissism is something that everybody needs to have so that we are all on that continuum. And healthy narcissism has to do with my own sense of well-being, that I matter, that I deserve love, that I have a lot going for me. And that sometimes we equate that with self-esteem, which is another whole topic. But healthy narcissism is what gives us resiliency. It gives us the sense that we're entitled to a good life or to love. So that if you think of that continuum of healthy narcissism on one end, and unhealthy narcissism on another end, and that everybody has it, that narcissism is something that we all are a part of, or narcissism, that we're all on that continuum that is different than a personality disorder. So my healthy narcissism comes and goes. And in people who I would call normal people, sometimes the swing is a little bit of grandiosity, sometimes it's a little deficiency, And sometimes I'm not in it at all. I'm just, you know, trying to collect money for homeless dogs or helping my kid with her homework or weeding in the garden. I'm not even thinking about myself. When I go for a job interview, it comes up or I'm in a fight with my partner, it comes up. But it's a part of well-being. In narcissism, in the character disorder, it's always the center from which I operate. So I'm never out of it. Everything, that expression, which is sort of funny, it's another buzzword, it's all about you, that expression really is true. In a person with narcissistic character disorder, because they lack empathy for other people and because they lack a certain awareness that other people count, it is all about them. And they never get out of it. It's constricted around them 24-7, like you never took your headphones off. That's narcissism. People on the continuum, we take them off, we put them on. People who are the personality disorder, every decision we make comes from that sense of it's got to be about me. I've got to get something, praise or validity, or I have to get something from you. Make sense? It does. Great. So we've defined a little bit of what a narcissist is versus narcissistic behavior. What factors influence narcissism and what factors influence narcissistic behavior. And what I mean by that is we know that some people who are, for example, and I'm trying not to make this comparison, but I'm just going to have to anyway, psychopathy, for example, there are plenty of people. In fact, there was a researcher and you might know this, who this is, who was studying psychopathy and he thought there was an error in his data because he scanned his own brain and it came up positive for psychopathy. And he was like, oh no, all my results are ruined. So they redid the test and it turns out he has a psychopathic brain, except it was never quote unquote activated because he had a normal childhood and he had a normal existence growing up and he worked hard and he achieved results and he wasn't this crazy, selfish, awful human being. And that's sort of led to some more research where it's like, oh, you can have this stuff sort of latent, you can have the potential for it, but it doesn't mean you have to act on it. It's based on environmental factors, sort of the nature versus nurture stuff. Is narcissism like that too, where we can have a narcissistic brain, but maybe that program isn't running in the background because of the way we were raised or the way that we are living our lives? Is it the same? Yeah, it is the same. We have a very narcissistic culture. For example, we have a culture where kids get told they're wonderful just because they're learning how to walk and that rewards the kid for being anything, for being everything. And there's a lot of criticism about that, about how kids are raised to have so much self-esteem that they have over-entitlement. And part of our culture is what goes into that. That there is a switch, like you say, that turns on. There is a very strong genetic component to narcissism. You know, in twin studies where twins are separated at birth or where studies where people who are not around their genetic parents, adoption, become like them in terms of narcissism or self-referencing or inability to feel empathy for another person. There's a very strong, strong component that has to do with nature. And then there's all the factors of our personality besides that that come into it. 
that either enhance or diminish. Then there's what happens to us. And then there is something very mysterious that I really don't know. And the older I get, the less I feel I know about what makes us who we are. There's a guy named James Hillman. He's wonderful. He, and he has a book where he talks about three components of the human. One is called nature. One is called nurture. And the third he calls the acorn. And he says that the acorn is something we come with that is mysterious and that it's kind of what we are meant to be. And you can call that soul or spirit or something that isn't defined by science, but that that also is in the mix with it. So how people actually get to who they are is something that, you know, is mysterious. We'll probably never understand it, but those are certainly all the components you can look in a family and some people are naturally empathetic. Let's look at narcissism just with one quality, which is the quality of empathy or allegiance to other people. You know, you go camping and you pick your trash up because there's this sense that other people are coming in after you and you want to make it nicer. Some people inherently don't care. Some people really care. They want to set the fire up for the next person. What is that, do you think, that's in that person? Is it just what they're taught or is it in them from the beginning? I have no idea. I would assume that it's probably something they're taught. I don't think so. I think that that's a part of it. But I think that the bigger part of it is that some kids are, from the beginning, very aware of other people and empathetic. They want to share their toys. They feel distressed if they have a sibling who's upset. And some kids don't notice it. It's not like they're bad or it's not like something's missing but they're just not as tuned into other people. So part of what happens in our adult relationships, the more narcissistic we are, the less we are tuned into how our behavior affects our partner. Now, here's something really interesting. Okay, I'm just gonna exaggerate this whole thing. Let's say there's one person that's very strong on the narcissistic scale. They lack being tuned into how other people are reacting to them. What kind of a person are they going to draw to them, do you imagine? Let's say there's a 100% in a relationship that has to do with how much you care about other people. So let's say person one is 3% of that. Who's going to come into the relationship? The person who has 97% care about other people that we sometimes call codependent. Or a person who is so tuned into other people, they forget about themselves. But if you imagine that each person takes up 50% of the space in a relationship, then you can't have a narcissist in that because that person only gets half the page or half the space. But a person who takes up all the space or 97% is going to attract somebody who only feels like they need to take up or deserves to take up 3% of the space. So there you've got the narcissistic and what we call codependent or enabler relationship. That's really interesting. So narcissists and codependents kind of magnetize towards each other, you think? Yeah, because if I think my value is what I give to you, and you think that my value is what I give to you, yes, we've got a match to start with. We've got a mess later on, but we've got a match to start with. Right, so how come this leads to a downfall? I mean, how come a person whose value is derived from giving everything to other people doesn't just live happily ever after with somebody whose value is derived from taking from them. Well, I think some people live like that forever, but I think that there is also something in us, most of us, that is trying to get healthier. You know, it's like if you put a plant in the window, it's going to turn itself to face the sun. In the same way, I think people generally turn themselves to get healthier. Feeling cared about is something that is a healthy entitlement. Having you always park your car so I can't park mine in the driveway is something that the healthier I get, the more intolerable it becomes. So there's this joke about codependents or enablers that you can always find them because they're in the self-help center of the bookstore. <laughs> they're trying to figure out how they can get healthier. So usually, well, two things happen. One, the narcissist grows tired of their partner. And as they do that, their behavior often gets much more discounting, and they stop doing the very few things that they do anyway to make the relationship stay well. So the other person gets sick of that. That's one part of it. But another part of it is that when we live in an unhealthy dynamic and we're not essentially a character disorder, 
we start to react against it. The third thing is that in every relationship, there are seasons in a relationship. Some of those seasons are, you know, hard. They're winter in a long-term relationship. You know that sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not so good. And when you're going through the winter or a tough season in a relationship, which is a normal thing to do, a person who is narcissistic will not be able to go through that with kindness and doing the things that repair or get you back to a spring or summer. They just can't do it. They lose interest. Then they start to blame the other person for what's going wrong when it may be just a normal cycle of love. And so you may enter into a relationship with a narcissist because you love being with someone who seems superior because they seem accomplished. But after a while, being treated poorly starts to wear. And that's when the person starts to rebel. And that's when the narcissist can get really nasty. Tell me about an example of this that maybe you've seen in your work so that people can say, oh yeah, yeah, that's happened to me or that's happened to my friend instead of just looking maybe at the abstract characteristics of someone not sticking with them through a downtime in their relationship. One of the troubles with a narcissistic, one of the terrible pains they live with is that underneath this sense of entitlement and being better than is this very deep wound that their worth is really low. And so that there is this fragility and narcissism. So I had a couple once where the woman was out to save him and he was not a very, he wasn't a flamboyant narcissist. He was sort of what I would call more of a fragile narcissist where, or a vulnerable narcissist where he felt like people were always against him. And he lost one job after another, after another. And so when they came to see me, it was because his wife had finally said to him, this is six jobs in seven years. There's something you're doing. She'd never challenged him. And he had insisted it was always the boss who was bad. Of course. He's what was called the vulnerable narcissist, which is that his grandiosity was not I'm better than, it's I'm worse than everybody. Everybody hates me. And he flipped out and got violent and abusive with her. He threw things against the wall and she finally got the courage to say, can you look at your part in it? And he couldn't bear it. He couldn't bear that question because her job from the very beginning, from where she had come from, was to protect a little sister that was being abused all the time. And she became a great protector. She was really great at telling him all the time, you're wonderful. No one understands you. And as long as she was in that game with him, the relationship worked. But when she finally challenged him and said, what about your part? He completely came undone and the relationship came undone. She had to choose between getting healthy herself or the marriage. He would not do anything to repair that or to work with that. Right. In his mind, as a narcissist, it's not his fault. It's the other people's fault. And then she joined the ranks of the person that didn't understand him. So there's a grandiose narcissist who says, I'm big and I'm powerful and I'm better than everyone. Then there's the vulnerable narcissist that says, you know, I'm worthless. I'm worse than everyone. I couldn't get that job or people just don't like me right off the bat. But both of them share that characteristic. And then there's people that act that way, but they're not really the character disorder. They can learn to tap into the part of them that's all ready to go that cares about other people. Put them in a soup kitchen. Then you can see the people who can get better and who don't get better. Get them to do some service in the world. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. 
You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. It's weird because you're locked in, right? Unless the narcissist goes, you're right, I am a narcissist. I'm willing to grow with you, enabler. That relationship has to end because if the enabler decides I'm gonna grow, the narcissist goes, well, that's not gonna work for me. And so the relationship is doomed. What do you need? What are some of the skills you need in a relationship? One is you need to be able to challenge your partner. Even if they're innocent, you need to be able to say, my feelings really were hurt when you canceled our bike ride on Saturday to be with your friends. If your partner flips out and can't even hear that kind of a complaint, how do you deal with the big issues? So the narcissistic character disorder can never be challenged. They're always trying to make up for being deficient. Let's talk about why people use that label with their partners, because I think that's an interesting segue into something else, which is why that phrase is kind of the cliche of our time. My ex is a sociopath, you know? Right. Well, it sounds more clinical than we're not getting along and potentially part of this is my fault. It's easier to go, there's a clinical reason they're terrible. There's a medical reason that this person is awful. I'm fine, though. I'm, I'm great. I don't do anything wrong. That's right. That's right. And also, I mean, when you're in your, when you're cornered in your relationship and your feelings are hurt and you've had a bad day, would you like a video on you? Like we all can act like jerks at times and our partner gets to see the biggest jerk part of us. So sometimes when we're under a lot of stress, how we act is not something we want to, we even would want to look at. And our partner sees that. And sometimes we can act pretty self-centered. I think most of us do, but that doesn't mean we're a narcissist. So when you're ending a relationship, let's say your partner has dumped you and you're really upset about it, or your partner is rejecting you and you're reacting to that, it does feel like it's all about you. Or let's say that your partner broke up with you and started going out with your best friend, so you threw all her clothes out on the lawn. Are you a sociopath? Or did you have a really bad moment where you said all kinds of things and said, get the heck out of here? That doesn't make you a sociopath. It makes you that somebody who was cornered and acted out in a way that you're probably not very proud of. But that's not a sociopath. That's just a moment. We're pathologizing normal behavior, which is happening under stress. Like That's it, right, perfect, you said that perfectly. And it's normal to act certain ways when we're in extreme situations. It's different if your significant other said they didn't wanna see a certain movie and you threw all their stuff out on the lawn. That's crazy. That's, yeah, that is crazy. Although under certain conditions, some of us could even do that too if we had a bad enough day. I mean, sometimes, Everything seems like it's a front on you, you know? And here's the other thing about narcissism, about narcissists, they're deeply lonely people. They don't have that bonding part of them where they connect in a soft way from the heart with other people. They're very isolated. And underneath the narcissist is very fragile. You know, there's workshops that are given about how to work with a narcissist. And the number one question is, how do you get the back? They usually don't go to therapy, first of all because there's nothing wrong with them. It's other people that need to get fixed. If they do get in, and it's usually when they've lost just about everything, it's usually their partner that's trying to figure out how they can help the narcissist or how they can manage to be in the relationship with getting so little back. But when a narcissist finally does come in, they come in always because there's something wrong with someone else. The question is, how do you get him to come a second time? And it takes years because their ego is so fragile, it takes years to be able to challenge them. And it's an art to be able to challenge a narcissistic person so that they're able to hear it. Because underneath all that grandiosity is the sense that I'm worthless. It's like they're kind of floating. They're not standing on normal ground. They're floating in this contained shell of, I have to pump myself up because I don't really have anything inside of deep value. Right. So the narcissism does come from internal sense of lacking that can't be filled by the person who's willing to give. It just can't. 
No, that's right. So let's say you're in a, a normal relationship that has normal trouble. And what you have to do is you've got to take it apart. You have a loop. We've talked about that before. You're in a normal loop in your relationship. And the way out of that loop, which is those reoccurring arguments that go on and on, is each person has to see their part and do something different. Mm. One person may be withdrawing too much and their job is to move towards their partner. The other person may be too needy and want more connection. They have to move away from. We have to look at our part and say, what can I change? Because a narcissist can't look at their part, they can't change anything. They're powerless to make a different move. This is a very painful thing for both people. The person who's narcissistic, who thinks that they know everything. You know, I have people that come in sometimes that are somewhat on the scale. I mean, not the great pathological narcissist, but I think have more narcissism than less. And they always say the same thing in therapy, which is there's nothing you can tell me I don't know about relationships, about myself, about my partner. But it's all because of what they did. That is really hard to deal with just as a therapist, let alone a partner or a friend. Right, because they're completely blind to it. That's the whole pathology is it's not them. It's kind of like saying, hey, Linda, you know your face is purple? No, it's not. It's I'm wearing a purple sweater, but it, my face is not No, your face is purple. Yeah, right. If she doesn't think her face is purple, well, I can't help you there. I mean, if you don't even see the fact that your face is purple, because your face is, to the narcissist, your face is as purple as the sky is blue for everyone else, right? That's right. And they can't be wrong. A narcissist can't be wrong ever, ever, ever. One of the things that I, two things I want to go into. One is how to avoid being involved with a narcissist. And the other is what if you really are in a deep relationship with someone who has a character disorder because it plays out everywhere in their life and you got yourself into it, what do you do? Right, I just wanna highlight the last thing you said, which is that since our relationships are built on a dynamic between two people, we've gotta see what we're doing, what part we're playing, what role we're playing in this because it's always easier to blame other people's behavior rather than look how their behavior interplays with our own. And I think it's true for all of us. I mean, I think most people go to therapy hoping their partner gets fixed, but soon they start to realize, hey, there's stuff I'm doing that I could do differently. But that doesn't, with a narcissist, that doesn't click on. They don't, they can't admit that. There's different relationship rules because only one side is going to even be able to see the problem and be able to fix it, whereas the other person is convinced that it's not them. Another characteristic of a narcissist is they are always an exception to every rule. Rules don't apply to them. Not the rules of good communication, not the rules of showing up on time for work. I'm an exception to everything because I'm so special. So how do you work that in a relationship that I feel like I don't need to play by any rules because I'm so great that they don't apply to me? So what happens in the relationship is one person may start the other partner, I would call them the enabler, the codependent, may start getting healthier. First, they may get sick of being poorly treated, but they may also realize that everything they're trying to do is to try to make the narcissist happier and come to some point where they say, you know what, what about me? See, number one is the narcissist, it's all about me. Number two is the person who's with the narcissist is it's not about me. I can make it all about you. And that's kind of how I know to love. I don't feel like I'm entitled. You're entitled to 90%. I'm entitled to 10. And that can work well for a while, but it's very fragile and it starts to break apart. So sometimes people come in who are with a person who is, quote, narcissistic or a narcissist, and they want something to be different. They've come to a place where they say, I deserve something different. I'm worth more. And sometimes their partner can make that leap and sometimes they can't. Right, it seems very tough because it's almost poor narcissists, right? It's almost a leap of faith for them because they have to at some point go, okay, I don't see it at all. Maybe it's because I'm a narcissist. Let me try this whole therapy thing. But then of course, if they're really hardcore narcissistic, they're just thinking, ah, this person might just be trying to take advantage of me or they're thinking they're getting gaslighted by the other person. They're not fair. That's what narcissists love, that expression. It's not fair. And then, of course, the other person who's used to being a pushover and giving and giving and giving has been under the spell of this narcissist telling them that it's them the whole time. 
And it, it almost takes a therapist to have to go, look, here's my semi-objective third-party therapist opinion, and then they both have to trust that therapist, which is just kind of a tall order. Yeah, and since the narcissist doesn't really connect, they're not gonna trust in the same way that you would trust if you connect. So for a narcissist, they may go and shovel snow off the neighbor's lawn, but what matters to them is not that the 90-year-old neighbor isn't gonna fall down and break her hip, but that the neighbor saw how generous and great they were. So that's what it means it's all about me. They don't give something without wanting everyone to know how great or generous or wonderful they are. So it's really about their reflection all the time. So it's very, very hard. And it's also one of the greatest things we do in relationships is really learn how to love somebody for them. I mean, it's such a great feeling to be able to do that. They don't get that feeling. Yeah, of course. They are kind of medically incapable of it. I'd love to get back to the current trend of labeling people, lovers, partners, parents, whatever, as having character disorders. Why is this damaging? Because it seems obvious on its face, well, you know, it's not nice to tell someone they have a disease or assume they do, but there's more at play here, right? Because it's kind of like when people who are quiet say, well, I'm an introvert, so I can't network for jobs and I can't be social because I have this personality trait and there's nothing I can do about it. Is it just because it makes us helpless? So one of the things about it is that two things come up right away. The first thing is that it's a cliche. It doesn't talk about what's really happening. It makes it into a cartoon sort of. Well, my ex is a sociopath. And often this plays out when people have kids between them. They escalate their behavior. If you split up and you have kids, you bo- or if you split up and you don't have kids, you lose half of your life for a while till you rebuild it. And so there's a lot of acting out against each other. and. It's easier to give that person a label than to try to see the bigger story, including your part in whatever is going on. It's an easier thing to do. It's also easier if you're looking at parents and you put them in a box or family members or old friends or old girlfriends. Putting them in a box means you don't have any responsibility for what has gone wrong in the relationship and you can be a victim. And there's some people get off on being victims. Rather than I created this dynamic with my brother where, you know, I always felt like I was less than and he felt like I was more than. And I guess that was our age difference, too. But we need to change that. Like my brother is a jerk, you know, and that's just he's a narcissist. And it's sort of like that's that. There's nothing you can do to repair it. And it gets you off the hook of saying, how did I buy into that or how am I a part of that? That makes sense, right. It's leaning on that medical excuse, right? Like we mentioned before, where it's, well, there's nothing to be done. This is just the way he is. Well, maybe, but then we're ignoring the ability for him to change if they want to, our role that we play in it, et cetera, et cetera. So, all right, that makes sense. It sort of puts it in a bucket and leaves it there instead of making it a a changeable situation. So we've learned the difference between clinical narcissism and people who are exhibiting narcissistic behavior because of situations. How do we find our own place on the continuum? Is it just being more observant? Is it just noting when we do this? And why is it important to note that we're on that same continuum? The University of Indiana, I was, decided they wanted to, rather there's a long questionnaire to test for narcissists, but they wanted to see if they could shorten it. So they just asked this question, are you a narcissist? And they found that the people who said yes correlated very strongly with the people that turned out to be narcissists on this test, that there was something they were proud of. Not are you narcissistic? Certainly, I think most of us would say, yeah, well, sometimes I really am. But are you a narcissist? They found that the majority of people that said yes were actually narcissists. The magic question, as though it was a badge of honor. I think that's very funny. The question you're asking is how do you unravel, how do you start to unravel this? It's very painful, not just for the narcissist, but if you're in a relationship with someone who is quote, a narcissist or very high on the scale. It's a very painful dynamic. Getting out of a relationship, I think, is very hard if you love somebody. And when you read articles about if you're in love with a narcissist or you're married to a narcissist, you need to get out. I think it does a disservice because sometimes people can make giant leaps. So what happens if you realize that you are with somebody? This is the real test that their entire history is the same as it is with you. Their history of other relationships, friendships, family, jobs, 
that that all has the same dynamic, that they were always right, that other people misunderstood them, that other people were jerks, and now it's happening to you. This is a person who is probably not going to change, but you're still stuck in a relationship that's going to be painful to get out of. But if they have that history, that's a really good indication that this has been there forever. But sometimes people can make changes. I think that what happens is as one person gets healthier and they start getting it, that they're not always at fault, that they are entitled to have someone care for them as much as they care for the other. There's this really crucial place where you can either put the other in a box and say they're a jerk, or you can really try to address this, not by trying to fix the other person, but by getting healthy yourself and trying to do it in a way that remains kindly towards your partner. And that's a very delicate walk. I don't mean enabling towards your partner. I mean kindly towards your partner. And that's something that when I work with people in that, it sometimes can turn it around. Not always, but sometimes it can. This is very interesting because it seems like it requires almost a an elevated level of introspection on the part of both the quote-unquote victim and the narcissist at the same time. Unfortunately, narcissists, it seems like what you're saying is they might even have that level of introspection, it's just that they're unable to see or unwilling to change. Or is this totally detached? I mean, where do we kind of begin fixing the situation, I guess, is what I'm really asking. Usually when they've lost a relationship after relationship, or people don't talk to them, or they're out of a job, that's when they really come in and say, I need help. Right, right. That actually makes sense. Most of the people listening to this are not going, yeah, I'm a narcissist. I might need to figure this out. Most of the people are going to be the ones who go, I'm dating a narcissist, or I always date narcissists, or I've been in a relationship with a narcissist, or I think I'm in a relationship with a narcissist. Yeah. The narcissist turned it off as soon as they heard the topic and said, that doesn't apply to me. Right. Or, yeah, screw these people. They don't know what they're talking about. This guy's some moron runs a podcast in his basement. Who cares about him? Right. Who cares? So I I get it. That's going to be a a smaller percentage of the population. Although I will say we have gotten fan mail from people who said, I found out I was a narcissist after listening to your show. I went to a therapist and, you know, went through all the stuff. And it looks like I've been dealing with this for years. And I'm really glad I discovered that. And I thought, wow, that's really cool, because the amount of self-awareness that it would take to admit that and then go try to fix it because it's ruining your life is admirable. And that may be a person who was taught to be a narcissist who was an only child of doting parents that said everything they did was perfect and they were going to grow up to be, you know, the greatest person that ever lived. And that's something that is conditional or conditioned. And you can change your conditioning as opposed to someone that has all the genetic material and all the stuff that sort of enhanced their narcissism. You know, one thing just to the side, we'll come back, but a lot of times people who are alcoholics or addicts or addicted to love, which we know people can be, that that mirrors narcissism, but it really isn't narcissism. That if you have a fix you're trying to get to all the time, that becomes the focus of trying to soothe yourself or manage yourself. And that's what you care about. And you lie, you stop caring about other people. You do things that are always trying to make up for the mess you've made because of the addiction. And that looks like narcissism. But often when a person goes to rehab, they get clean, that stops. So we don't really know what it is till we get a really good diagnosis from someone who knows how to diagnose it. Before the show, we talked about understanding emotional regulation and deregulation. Can we get into that? I think this might be something practical that people can take away from this as well. Right. So what is emotional regulation? It's one of the most important components to emotional intelligence. And it means that if my partner says something that I feel upset about, I'm able to not come back and do something hurtful or totally close off. I can soothe myself. I can calm myself down. I can say, wait a minute, he's really upset. I don't have to get hooked into this conversation. I can manage myself, not react from my four-year-old or my 12-year-old, and do what I need to kind of bring myself back to being grounded and respond from a healthier, balanced place. A person who's unregulated, they just scream or they throw things or they feel angry because someone cuts them off in traffic and they, you know, act out road rage. Emotional regulation is we're all going to get upset about stuff, but how do we soothe ourselves back? I mean, I really saw it during the election. I had six couples I was working with where they were voting for different people and they were activating each other all over the show. 
you know, all over the place. I mean, this is a whole other thing because that election was so filled with feeling for people and people were screaming and yelling and throwing things in my office, which never happens because of this topic, because they were coming out at the hinges. Their partner would say, well, I'm for so-and-so because, you know, they're the only person that's going to save the country in there. And their partner would flip out. And so that that, that was a, a situation where the topic was so vulnerable that it brought out people's extreme behavior. You know, I had one couple who really both looked, I thought, are they really crazy? Have they flipped out? But they they weren't. They were so stressed out by the topic that they acted it out in a very exaggerated ways. And they got themselves back together and said they were sorry and calmed down and found a place and apologized to each other. But emotional regulation is when we're able to regulate very extreme responses to stress, often brought out when our partner says, can we talk? Or I don't want to go to dinner with you. Sometimes that can exaggerate our stress and we react in a way that's harmful. So one of the most important components to emotional maturity is being able to manage that flight, fight, or freeze response in a way that doesn't harm ourselves or the other person. So are there some steps that we can take to understand emotional regulation, understand emotional deregulation, and then start to implement this? Yes, the first one nobody's going to like that's listening to this. This is going to be the most unpopular thing that's been said on your show. First thing you can do is pay attention to the feedback you get from other people. If your partner tells you you're really defensive, or if your boss tells you that you can't take feedback, pay attention to that instead of to become defensive. You know, look at the data in your life, not just with one person, but with many. What is it that people complain about with you? Are you too reclusive? Do you not share enough? Is that what you hear over and over? And really have the courage to examine that. Not that you're bad. It's like we all have things that we do that annoy other people or that harm our relationships, everybody. So being willing to hear that feedback is the first. So that's the first thing everybody can do is to say, okay, what have I heard over and over again from other people about where it is that I can grow myself in a relationship? That's number one. I'm worried that somebody who's dating a narcissist or is in a relationship with a narcissist is gonna say, well, I hear the same thing from him all the time, which is that, I don't know, whatever narcissists tell their victims all the time. Is that the feedback we're looking for? Or are we looking at the feedback like, well, my ex-boyfriend told me I was too giving, my mom tells me I'm a pushover, my brother tells me I'm a pushover, my girlfriends all tell me I'm a pushover, and this guy tells me that I don't do enough for him or that I don't understand him or whatever it is. We gotta look for feedback from multiple sources, right? It's so good what you said. That was such a clever thing you picked up because you're right. A person who's codependent is always looking for where they're wrong or where they're off. And that can make them try harder with somebody who isn't giving them anything back. So that was great. So you want to look for multiple sources. You want to look at your whole life and say, where is it? And you don't have to do this in a negative way. Where can I grow myself so I can be more effective and more loving in my relationships? Where is it that my eight-year-old is still in charge? Or where is it that my inner tyrant that's seven and mad or my 14-year-old oppositional self? You know, I have this part of me that's 14. And if I'm cooking or I'm driving or whatever I'm doing, if somebody offers a suggestion, my first reaction is I get mad at them. Don't tell me what to do. I've got this like so in every cell in my body. I've got to work on that all the time. Not that I want people to tell me what to do, but a good suggestion isn't something I need to react to like I'm still 14. And, and I, we all have those places. Right, so we need to look at feedback, what we're getting from other folks, what we're getting from people that we trust that maybe do have our best interests in mind, not the partner with whom we have the problem, the issue. Right, who's trying to control us with that. And then to really watch ourselves and see if we believe that it's true. Is that true? So, I mean, I think that part of healthy narcissism, part of that healthy spectrum is somebody who says, you know, I can keep growing myself because I really deserve to have the best relationships I can have. So where is my part of this that I can do to make myself healthier? One of those things is to know that I'm entitled to be treated well. So that can be very healthy for someone who's in a relationship with a narcissist, where part of the time I get to have you take care of me or you think about how I'm gonna feel about something. Right, and of course the 
serial narcissists or the actual narcissist is not going to do much of that. If we're thinking that we're the victim of this or we're the other party in this relationship, we have to look at ourselves and go, okay, I never think about self-care or I never think about what I'm getting from this relationship other than being comfortable in my victim role because dot, 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 childhood stuff or whatever. Or a part of healthy relationship is I have to be able to give feedback to you about something that you did that hurt my feelings. And some of the time you need to be in a healthy relationship, you need to listen to that and say, I'm sorry I did that. I, I'm going to change that. That wasn't fair. So that's another place that a person can look at their own behavior. Can you make complaints and get heard about that? And can you hear complaints and make changes for the sake of the other person? Right. So those are two little quick tests. And skills too, life skills that we need. Very interesting. So observing our own patterns, taking feedback from those around us that we can trust. Is there anything else that we need to focus on that we can look at here? Yeah, get educated, read, listen to programs like yours, find out about this. If you grew up with two narcissistic parents where your needs didn't matter and you just built a whole life on that and you ended up with somebody who also believed your needs didn't matter and you believe they didn't matter, that's what normal life is to you. So start educating yourself that that isn't actually normal. And I think that for somebody who may wonder if they're a narcissist, to know that with courage and a lot of good support and help, you can learn how to attach to other people, to creatures. You can learn the skills that can really put you in the ballpark to have a good enough relationship but you have to have the courage to look at yourself like all of us. Right, so it comes down to, in part, being willing to look in the mirror and also, in part, knowing who to trust in terms of feedback, which totally makes sense to me. One of the greatest things that narcissists can do to start to break that is to find empathy for themselves because narcissists also don't have empathy for themselves. They have entitlement for themselves, but it's different than compassion. So finding real compassion for oneself is also the way out of it. Compassion is not a weenie feeling. It's not a feeling of I'm going to give myself, you know, real self-love is not indulging yourself. Real self-love is sometimes saying, I've got to say no to this because it's not good for me. Or I've got to apologize because that was unfair what I did. So learning the difference between indulgence and real self-care is another really important issue. That's a whole talk in and of itself. Wait, what, do, what do you mean by indulgence versus real self-care? Can we expand on that just a little bit? Indulgence is I'm going to give myself everything I want. And self-care is I'm not going to give myself everything I want because it's not good for me. Indulgence is, well, it's not my fault. It's so uncomfortable to apologize. That's a whole other topic is apology. But it's so uncomfortable to apologize that I'm not going to do it. And self-care is in really in service to my being the kind of person I want, I have to learn sometimes to say, I'm sorry. And not I'm sorry you feel bad, but I'm sorry that I did that thing that made you feel bad, which is a real apology. That indulgence is I'm going to only take the job that's going to make me look good or feel good. And self-care is I need to learn other parts of this job, even if it's not fun, so I can be the best I can at what I do. So they're very different. Perfect. Well, Linda, this has been super interesting. I know that there's a lot of people who are in neck deep in relationships where they're wondering if they're dating a narcissist or they know that they are, and they've been through this or they're going through therapy or they're thinking about therapy or they can't get to therapy because the other person won't do it. So this has been enlightening, and I think it gives us a tool to look at our own relationships and our own behavior and one, identify what situation we are actually in. Are we dating a narcissist or just dealing with some narcissistic behavior? And looking at the dynamic of what role we play in this, if any, which is, of course, going to be something. And then, of course, then and only then are we able to take action, which is fix the relationship or just get the heck out of there. And we can do it with empathy. We can leave a relationship with a narcissist with empathy. We can even have a narcissistic partner or a borderline parent and develop empathy for that person if we have good enough boundaries. Empathy doesn't mean walk all over me. It just means I know this is a hard road for you too. And I wish it wasn't so. And I have to take care of myself. So I've got to make some pretty tight boundaries here. Right. But we can do this with empathy rather than name calling. Perfect. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I definitely understand the empathy angle. I think that's very important because otherwise then we just end up with resentment 
and a narcissistic person in our life that thinks, oh, well, it's going to be like that. And I would imagine that people who deal with narcissistic behavior, or rather people who are suffering from narcissistic tendencies in themselves probably don't deal well with being blamed for the downfall of their relationship, right? That's right. It's really a bummer to have it happen over and over and over again. So as usual, it's wonderful to talk to you. Likewise. It's really been fun to be here. Always fun talking with Linda Carroll. The narcissism thing, it really is a buzzword. I mean, you just hear it, you read it, you see it all the time. Everybody who breaks up with you is a narcissist and everybody who you don't get along with is a narcissist and everybody who raised you that you don't like is a narcissist. I mean, it's just a trendy buzzword, but it's not good for us, it's not good for them, it's not good for our relationships, it's not good for our growth. And it's good to have some exit strategies here or at least some tools to build awareness around this. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Linda on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. And remember, you can tap the phone screen while we're playing and you should see the show notes pop up right on your phone. And I'm also on Twitter, at The Art of Charm. It's a great way to say hello, goodbye, F you, et cetera, whatever you wanna do on Twitter. And our live programs, all that detail that you need for those, our live programs here in LA, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. The boot camps are super rewarding, well, for me, selfishly, because of how far they take people, what we see with our own eyes. It's really cool to see the AOC family grow. We'd love to have you a part of it. And, uh, of course, we have our AOC challenge. If you just want to dip your toes in the water, if you're new with us, that's at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or you can text the word charmed, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. And that challenge, it's about improving your networking skills, improving those connection skills, and we'll email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show as well. There's also regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward. It's designed to make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. That's at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or text the word charmed, charmed, to 33444. For the full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of AOC, as always, produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor, and show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.